0: This is a podcast from 3RR 102.7 FM in Melbourne,
1: truly independent community radio. Ooh, hoo, hoo. Happy Sunday wonderful Triple R listeners. I am Dr. Doolittle and you are tuned in and hopefully primed for another exciting episode of Radiotherapy. Joining me on the show this morning is a stellar cast of doers and talkers. Prepare for some introductions. Look, they're giggling at me already. First up, we have a special guest, Hugh Van Kylenberg. Hugh is the founding director of The Resilience Project, a project aimed at helping young people build mental health through resilience. His team teaches schools, sporting clubs and businesses about the benefits of gratitude, empathy and mindfulness. He's here to share his secrets and trust me, I think you'll be inspired because I know I am. Also joining us is Dr Eva Green, our passionate psychologist and climate warrior warrior no less. You've been elevated today, Eva. Eva has some news about wind farms that perhaps our Prime Minister, if he is listening, may heed. I suspect he is listening, I mean he must. What else would he do on a Sunday morning? Plus, being a mindfulness fan, she's jumping out of her skin to chat about resilience. And as if that isn't enough, we also have Dr Mellis, complete with his smooth voice and deep wisdom, or is it the other way around? Deep wisdom and smooth voice. I've got it wrong. He is going to give us the latest on how we can build resilience into helping those who have suffered trauma. So he's going to take it a step further. Somehow he's also going to segue this into chat about his beloved Hawthorne Football Club. But don't fret. If he gets out of hand, we'll mute his microphone and play the Collingwood theme song. So it's a win-win, really, if you think about it. Now, if you have comments for us, message us via our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R. Otherwise, sit back. And relax, and let the show begin. Good morning, everyone. Who will we start with? I reckon, Eva.
0: Thank you. Gave
1: you a fright. I told you a quick... Did. Eva. You
0: did. How are you, Eva? I'm fabulous, thank you. How are you?
1: Good. I haven't seen you here for a little while.
0: No, I've been busy.
1: I know. Getting I know. married. Getting married. I was wondering if you were going to oh. say, I didn't want to out you on air. <laughs> I don't like to out people who have got married. Really? No, no, because it's, you know, you've, uh, you've got I to guess, out yourself.
0: I guess so. No, it was a, it's a fantastic day, and I've been been succumbing to wifey duties like baking my first casserole and uh doing doing the husband's washing i haven't done that before no i'm
1: just come on feminists get on the phone (laughs) i was going to say this is going to start off in a major way with a
2: theme here (laughs) and dr Mellis, over to you how are you man oh look after three wins what can you say uh, what what am i referring to what am i referring to (laughs) <laughs> three wins,
1: I don't know.
2: First time in the season, Hawthorne have actually got string, string three wins together after the first part of the season on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. You didn't think you could win two in a row. I'm going to let you come back to football because I want to say <laughs> hi to Hugh first. Hugh van Kuylenberg,
3: how are you, man? I'm very good, thanks. Can, and, and can I just start by asking the question who thought of the name Radiotherapy?
1: It's, it's really <laughs> it's good. It's a ripper name. You know, this show's been going, oh, God, over 20 years now, and it started with the group who was still part of it. You know, we rotate through different panels each week now, but it started with this original group with Malpractice, Dr. SK, I've forgotten the others who were the originals, but one of they, and they originally Retina. sat, Retina, Retina was an original, and they yeah. originally apparently, <coughs> there was a little segment on a Tim Thorpe show in the morning, early, I think, and then it, it grew to this, and they originally sat around practicing and workshopping it all, and they used to virtually script the whole show, so they used to have it all written out beforehand, and then I'll say this, and then you'll say that, and they practiced talking into bananas, so the story goes, <laughs> but the most of us joined years later. I joined about oh, 12 years ago. How long have you been with us, Mel? Uh Since the mid-1990s. So, right, so oh, you're getting on... Approaching, is that 20 years? So you must yeah. have been... You can't be far after it started then. Well,
2: like we already had microphones. Like we gave up on the banana. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it was <laughs> this sort of Edible thing.
1: Edible microphones? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's been going a long time. So, but, yeah, but now, if you want to go back to your football, you can. But, you know, let's, seriously, no, yeah, let's... I, I think we're going to have to put a time, a time out because I'm filling in today largely for the wonderful, oh, my goodness, I've got a mental blank on on, on our regular host's name. Who's normally here? Who's That's had a baby? Autonomy. autonomy. I was, oh. didn't want to call her by her. I knew her real name. Oh, I yes. just couldn't remember her other name.
2: And now there's a baby autonomy. Yeah. So I
1: don't a... know what happens to the
2: original autonomy when you're a mum because then you've got a, a two- Sort of Deuteronomy, I Deuteronomy?
1: I Deuteronomy. Said, no, comes
3: after autonomy <laughs> and so can I ask? Go and can I also ask what's with the nicknames? I, I, I sort of thought of one for myself. I didn't really come up with one. <laughs> is, this, is this something to do with professional kind of when you're on the air? You don't. Well,
2: really Dr. Malice came up uh, with the producer actually, Retina, who said you can't use your uh, real name because of professional ethics. That uh, you just have to have a pseudonym. And so I yeah, gave uh, an okay. anecdote yep. uh, of a, a little boy who was asked. I asked in a session, "Do you know who I am?" And he came up with oh you're Dr Malice and
1: uh, and I said this story to Reckner and she said right that's the name you're going to be stuck with. That's, you know the only problem with your name too Malice is it is virtually the exact opposite to who you are. So like for example when Hugh was coming on today he said oh what are their nicknames and I said Dr Malice and I said but don't worry and you know and I have to say this every time but don't worry he's not like that he's a good bloke right. You know, we so, all have our dark side Yeah, and so I think it originally was Mal Practice thinking that yeah you know it was an ethical thing but yes, right, of course okay. over the years yep. there's a million clinicians on the radio now and they all the real name so we don't worry what about do little. Well, do little fitted me perfectly. One <laughs> well, because I am notoriously a bit of a do I'm the king of work life balance, so I don't do very much other than sit on the couch. Also, you know, do little was um, you know talking to animals. And at the time oh. I started, I was still finishing my doctorate, which is was in positron emission tomography, PET scanning, yeah. and my title at work was the fellow in pet psychiatry, oh. even though it stood for positron emission tomography not little cute dogs and cats and so it sort of just seemed <laughs> to fit at the time <laughs> how gorgeous <laughs> and of course eva green is your evergreen climate warrior ship which is a good segue for our first little bit of catch up because you are going to tell us something about wind farms
0: i am as uh, as we all know the pm kick-started the conversation on wind farms and impacts on human health a couple of weeks ago now and um i was On the one hand, quite pleased that he was bringing health back into the public arena. It's great to be talking about health, but obviously, on the other hand, his statements were uh, based on a lot of misinformation, and that's had a huge ripple effect in the media. Thankfully, a lot of people have come out and... um, Reported all of the reviews that have already been done on wind farms and the impact on human health and so I thought I could put that issue to rest a little bit, didn't feel so compelled to talk about it on radio today until I read in the newspaper, I think it was The Guardian on Thursday and then also on Friday in The Age um, that this drama is continuing That there was a leaked letter from the Environment Minister Greg Hunt listing all different ways that the government could monitor wind farms one including like appointing a Wind farm commissioner to handle complaints about wind noise, uh, and also a scientific committee to investigate alleged impacts on human health. So I became absolutely outraged, as per usual, um, not just because we already know that there are already numerous reviews. If our PM can read, which I think he can, uh, NHMRC, Vic Department of Health, Australian Medical Association, which all point to the evidence that there, well, there is not much available evidence that supports this causal link between wind. Farms and human health, and on the on, and also that there's this widespread support for renewable energy, including wind farms. So. It got me thinking, why do people complain about wind farms? What's what's underlying this from a psychological perspective? So I looked to the Australian Psychological Society. There was a submission made in May this year, um, headed by Heather Gridley and Susie Burke, which uh, provides some insights into this, which I thought were really interesting, so I wanted to talk about them this morning. Excellent, hey? Yes. Well, and so, I mean, aside from the fact that complaints about wind farms are happening within this context of climate change and... Um, perhaps complaints about wind farms are uh, communicating also where your position is on climate change, uh, your fears around that, and potentially your attachment to the business-as-usual approach. Uh, putting that aside for a second, uh, there was three key kind of areas that I thought were interesting. And The first was that uh, opposition to wind farms might be considered what they call a place-protective action. So often we become attached to our community where we live, uh, and this part forms part of our identity. So when changes are proposed, whether that be you know, a new telecommunication a telephone pole, a community hall, a mining extraction or housing estate, if we see these uh, changes as threatening our sense of place or weakening local character, then we're likely to oppose the change.
1: Is that another way of just saying we're conservative? At the end of the day, you know, all things being equal, we'll vote for things staying the same.
0: Um, Not necessarily, because if people feel like they've been consulted on the process and given uh, information around how whatever new development it is, how that might be adding to the character of the local community, then that that flips and people are more supportive of the action. So Uh how they're consulted is a big, important, and how attached you are to your community and sense of place. And the second factor was around audible noise and our impact. And, and we kind of know that that audible noise from any source can cause annoyance. I have a friend who can't stand the noise of pigeons. And and we all know, like, some of us can live near trains and I'm trams. I'm opposed
1: to pigeon farms if I'm supporting her.
0: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> what noise is a pigeon, make? Could you, <laughs> you do that, mate?
0: Do, do, I, do I look like I can't <laughs> I was know, going to go there, but I've decided not to. Okay. <laughs> we we did not need permits <laughs> That's,
2: that's so, strictly for the birds.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and, and it's important to know that, in actual fact, most people living in close proximity to wind turbines do not find the audible noise disturbing. Uh, but for those who it does, this can be significantly... Just impacting on um, their their annoyance can lead to feeling anger, helplessness, even depression. So it can lead to significant uh, impacts on quality of
1: life. How big is it? How loud is the noise? I've ridden on my bike past wind farms many times. Um, the closest i will probably come is I don't know four five hundred metres because yeah. they're normally in a field and I'm on a road. Yeah. Um, I must say, you know, I think when I stop, I can hear them, but not above the wind noise of riding. Yeah. Well, yeah. there'd have to be a few factors, including
2: which direction of the wind, and also many people have got different thresholds of hearing. True. Mm. And we know that in cases of depression, we have hyperacusis. We ha- we actually hear in a more refined way, mm. so they may be much more prone to be disrupted by a subliminal noise for most of us.
0: And so what we've got to keep in mind that it's not the objective noise that's causing the disturbance. Yes. It's actually psychosocial factors that are accounting for the variation because we all, we all uh, respond to this differently. And what they've found is that if you've got a negative attitude towards wind turbines or if you feel like there's been some kind of an injustice, then you're more likely to experience yes. noise annoyance. But if you've been involved in the process of development and if you're benefiting economically, funnily enough, you are less annoyed. <laughs> uh, now, now the I'm third... to get
1: that. You,
0: yeah, I, totally
1: I totally do I mean also I wonder how much people get used to it because you know how whenever you move into a noisy neighborhood when you first get there you hate it yeah and um after a while you don't notice it you know I grew up opposite train lines I don't think we heard a train after about six months when we first got there it was oh how are we going to be able to you know cope with all these trains it's horrible and then after a while you know what trains so you adjust. We,
0: we are very adjustable as human beings and now the third factor is this fear of new technology which we see happening all over the place certainly where I grew up there was a new telephone pole to be put in the middle of a a small shopping district, and the community banded so strongly to protest against this for fear of all of the mobile electromagnetic, yeah. you know, seeping and into them their brains, they're
1: telephones, so yeah. and all them peoples who talk so yeah. on telephones. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you grow up in the twenties? No, <laughs> a mobile telephone pole, was it? No,
0: so I, I'm not sure what they're called. So they're yeah. the you know oh, for the, the, for the, the mobile station, exactly, yeah. 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 When you yeah.
1: said telephone pole, I was thinking you know the old good old days. Oh
0: no. No, no, no.
1: no. Mobile. When telephones went over wires. You won't even remember it, Eva. You won't. But in the good old days, they went over wires. (laughs) Before that, it was strings and two pieces of tin. And we held them tight and we yelled into it. Well,
2: I still remember remember the smoke signal days. Oh, (laughs)
1: now so then (laughs) were the good old days. Thanks, Malice. Sorry, Eva, I'm interrupting you.
0: You are. Yeah, you said this
1: before the show. You said, don't interrupt me.
0: Well, I said, if you don't want the segment to go on for too
1: long. And I do. Keep going.
0: So, what we know, so there's this worry about potential health. If we're worried about potential health risks, then we're more likely to experience and complain about those health risks So, and to experience them for ourselves. It's the nocebo effect, the opposite of the placebo effect. Yep. So what we, we're knowing is like if people are presented with negative information about wind farms, then they're more likely to report symptoms. So this is where I wanted to leave this conversation, just to put this idea in people's minds, because the government wants to potentially uh, do a review into the health Impacts of wind farms, but what about the health impacts of misinformation?
1: Fair call. The yeah. health impact I'm, of I'm mis- processing. Inf- I'm processing on air. This, my brain is ticking over. <laughs> the health impacts of, of misinformation.
0: Because if he's giving mm. information that this is going to cause harm, and then that increases people actually experiencing those symptoms, the nocebo effect.
1: Yep. I'm with you.
0: And and also, potentially, my blood boils every time he does engage in misinformation. The stress that I'm experiencing, along with the 65% of other people who, according to the new Lowy polls, have are supporting you know significant action on climate change. I'm sure their blood was boiling as well.
1: I'm with you. And whilst I totally agree that there are health impacts of negative information, you know you wouldn't want to not bring out the negative information just because of the health effects. Because the last thing we want, especially from this government, mm. is suppressing any more information. Mm. We're already suppressing information mm. on asylum seekers. We're already mm. suppressing information mm. about all sorts of things that are going on, like mm. these fair trade deals. The last thing we want is, you know, I'm so sorry about that. But I get where you, we want what you're saying.
0: Act- Accurate information, yeah. not misinformation.
2: Correct. Yeah. Well, I think it r- raises the question of what is the difference between information, fact, and propaganda. Mm. Because information is, in a sense, a sort of a, an energy of what we're on about. Facts are, hopefully, something that, uh, and, and all of the above, I should say, have nothing to do necessarily with the truth. Mm. So it is a complex issue and mm. unless we have a debate and I think what you're anguishing about and hopefully blood doesn't boil too much but keeps it at a sort of simmering level is that this is part of the process of getting to the truth and seeking truth is no easy task.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Our special guest is, the, um, is Hugh Van Keilenberg. Hugh has been working in education for over 12 years. He started out as a primary school teacher and then he moved into a position with Cricket Victoria as a development um, facilitator working with disengaged adolescents. Um, and the, he says in uh, his bio that the highlight of his teaching career, however, was some time he spent in the north of India volunteering at an underprivileged school in the Himalayas. And it was here that he started thinking and working with the idea of resilience. And since that time, he's returned to Melbourne and started his own program that initially began in schools and now also moved into sporting clubs and uh, the business sector called The Resilience Project. And uh, if you get a second, jump on the internet and have a look at The Resilience Project. It's easy to find. if It's it's a .com.au, so it's dead easy. And uh, it's just fantastic, all the stuff they do. And it's also quite inspiring, a lot of the videos on there, and especially some of the messages from people who have been part of it. And you'll see that he's been uh, throughout schools in Melbourne. So, um, Hugh, g'day again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in on Sunday morning. It's always a bit of a uh, challenge in this cold weather. So why don't you start the ball rolling by giving us a bit of of an idea of what the Resilience Project's about. Yeah, happily. So
3: it all started for me in India uh, back in 2008. It was the first time I'd ever been there, and I ended up uh, in a school uh, which I was going to go and visit for two weeks up in the Himalayas, uh, up in a desert community, no running water, no electricity. I remember teaching a young boy uh, who's a nine-year-old, he's in grade three, and I remember at the time thinking this boy is the happier person I've ever met, which I thought was extraordinary considering where I was and how little he had. Uh, And on my last night in the community, or what was meant to be my last night in the community, uh, I was walking through the little village, everyone lives in mud huts to go and say goodbye to. One of the other teachers, uh, and, and I remember seeing this uh, this boy sitting literally in the gutter, unfolding a cardboard box and pulling it over himself like it was a blanket. Uh, I didn't realise um, how tough this kids' circumstances were. Um, this is literally a kid who sleeps in the gutter and my, my, first int, uh, my, my first observations on him was this is you know one of the happiest people I'd ever met uh, I went back to the little mud hut I was staying in um, uh, that night and I spoke to the principal who I was living with and he said, yeah, a lot of the kids from this community are just like that uh, and I couldn't sleep that night uh, and the reason I couldn't sleep was I was thinking about my sister my younger sister, Georgia and when Georgia was 13 years old she was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa uh, and she was absolutely ravaged by that for the next 17 years. She didn't really start to recover till she was 29 years old. Uh, and I remember lying there unable to sleep thinking, how is it that this kid who, who has uh, literally doesn't have a roof over his head, uh, you know, doesn't have a family, how is it that he's naturally very happy? Yet my sister, who grew up in Melbourne, loving family, really nice home, uh, we were very well educated. How is it that she struggled with happiness, yet this kid doesn't? Uh, And then when you look at this... And then I was thinking... uh, I remember thinking, you you know, I really don't think I can leave this community till I find out what is it that this kid does that my sister didn't do. And not just that. I mean, it's now one in one in five adults will suffer some form of mental illness in Australia. One in one in four adolescents, sixteen to twenty-four year olds, and now they've found recently one in seven primary school kids in Australia is currently suffering from some form of mental ill health. In the year two thousand and thirteen, fifty-four primary school kids took their own life. Fifty-four, uh, and I was lying there thinking uh, I need to find. And now in this community, it was closer to one in eighty-five people that have a mental health problem. This is a community that have no running water, and, sorry, I should say mental illness, um, and no running water, no electricity. So I decided that morning not to leave. I decided to stay and ended up staying for about half a year in this community. Um, and I made observations on what was going on there. And, and when I came back to Melbourne, very inspired by what I'd seen by this kid mainly, um, I remember thinking um, I need to learn more about this because I had my observations to go on, but there wasn't too much more than just my observations. So I went back to uni, did my post-grad studies and, and looked very closely at adolescent and child well-being. A mental illness and mental health. And I remember nearly falling off my chair the first lecture I went to where they talked about you know, what the research is now screaming at us that we must start doing uh, in Australia is what I watch this kid do every single day. And those three things are very simple. He practised gratitude, uh, he practised empathy and he practised mindfulness every single day. And, and I don't know, I think he learnt this instinctively. I don't know where he got this from, but he just learnt instinctively that
1: these are the things that matter. So I guess... Take us through each of those. Yeah. So how do you so start with maybe well, gratitude yeah well, let me just
3: um, I, on, on just on that story when I um, when I came back to Melbourne and I, and, I, and I looked at the research on this I thought this needs to be taught in schools and I understand that the school having been a teacher the curriculum is packed at the moment so I decided I wanted to take this out to schools very naively and very ambitiously I started the resilience project and just started knocking on principals doors saying I want to come and talk to the kids about this kind of stuff and I'd say you know who are you and no <laughs> you know, thanks for no thanks uh, and it took a while to, you know, to get Going, but Four years later, you know, we've we're 250 schools around mm-hmm. Australia and, and it's, it's been an amazing journey. But um, I will walk you through them all. Um, uh, gratitude really simply is paying attention to what we do have, not what we don't have. Yep. Uh, and this kid taught me that because every time he saw something he was grateful for, he would point to it. And he couldn't say the word this, he couldn't pronounce the T-H. He, he would point to something and say, sir, look, this this. And then, and what he would do, I remember him pointing at his shoes that he'd put on after class and and his toes were literally hanging that bar at the end of his shoes. Um, his, his shoes fit him when he was in prep. He's now in grade three. But he'd point to his shoes never he'd put them on and say, sir, this, this. And what he was saying was, how good this? I've got shoes. You yeah. know, He's only got one pair of shoes. They don't fit him. But he was thinking, I'm so lucky to have these. Uh, we in Australia are seven times more likely to notice a negative than a positive. We get sucked in. We, we are so easily seduced by the negative, And yet this kid here, taught me that it
1: is so important to pay attention to what you do have not what you don't have and, and which is what gratitude is why do you reckon anyone why are we so obsessed with the negatives i mean i've got my own theory on this, well, but I'd, I'd, do, I, I,
3: I think i think we have our ancestors to thank and 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 blame for that because back in the caveman days you know it paid attention to pay attention to none you know the negatives because there were threats on our lives if there's a rustling in the bush fair you call, call you need yep. to pay attention to what it is but times have changed we don't have threats on our lives like you know like we used to so mm. um so i think it's partly to do with that um but i found that people who out of survival need to know this stuff have learned. you know, have taught themselves um, that, that paying attention to the positive um, is more important now as I say to school kids you can't walk away from this session and say right, I'm going to be more positive you need to practice it and how do you practice it? you practice gratitude how do you practice gratitude? I very simply say to kids I want you to write down three things every single day uh, that went well for you or three things that you're grateful for um, and they keep
1: their own little journals which we give them um, and, and So you build it as a habit essentially You, you, get do, them, yeah, you, you bring, do. bring it into their everyday life so yeah. that they're looking for things and once they start doing it, it'll, be, it'll become natural and they won't need a diary eventually. And it is amazing what you see when people do
3: this. It's meant to be that. Say after 21 days, you, you, your brain starts mm. to scan the world for the positives, mm. your brain literally changes. But after six weeks of doing this, the side effects, of the, I shouldn't say side effects, the wrong word, but the impact of doing this is, is, is extraordinary. It's, mm. it's things such as you're less likely to get sick, you're, you have more energy, more, you, you know, you're more attentive, you're more alert, your depression and anxiety decreases. And I've seen so many examples of where this is mm. has worked. I, I, you know, when, when I go to schools, I'll turn up, on a you know one day and then I'll turn up again a week later and we go over some you know empathy and mindfulness having done gratitude the first week a girl came up to me at a school outside of Ballarat a couple of weeks ago and and, and when she came up to me she said oh I just had to let you know um, I've, she was 14 years old she said I suffer from really bad anxiety she said I've been writing down three things every day I'm really grateful for and she said I haven't had a panic attack mm. this week which is amazing for me it turns out this girl has panic attacks on a daily basis she said I haven't had one you know in a week because I've been simply writing down the- things I feel really lucky to have. This stuff works.
0: I was just going to say to compliment what you're describing, it's it's almost like thankfully now we're beginning to realise the importance of teaching emotional intelligence yeah. rather than just assuming that we know how to be happy and we know how to experience emotions, rather than assuming that's something that comes naturally to us. We're realising that it's actually a skill that we need to teach and cultivate.
3: Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Mm. You know um, this, Oh, sorry, gone. No, 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 that's right. I was just going to get to empathy and mindfulness. But it just just resonates for me. <laughs> this is a really stupid story, which is typical of all the stories I tell. But when I was growing up, I used to live near Chadston. And in those days, Chadston was relatively small. It wasn't like it is now a mega complex of shops everywhere. And it had the chatty bowl and it had a donut shop. And we'd go up there. And on the wall of the donut shop, there was this big quote that stuck in my head my whole childhood. And bizarrely, because you're going to hear the quote in a second, it's a stupid quote, but it stuck in my mind. And the quote on the wall was, um, as you travel on through life, Whatever be your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not (laughs) upon the hole. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I used to see that when I got to Chatty Bowl every week to go into bowling and buy a donut. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, the, it's the donut shop at Chatty Bowl's equivalent to gratitude, absolutely. to focusing yeah, on what you've got on. rather than mm. you haven't got. Yeah, and it's stuck in on. my head my whole life. That and the quote that at the newspaper thing at Christmas where we used to give these stupid cards out. You know, I did a paper hand from when I was about nine, and you gave these Christmas cards out every year that said, Christmas comes but once a year, and when it comes, it brings good cheer. So in the midst of all your joy, please don't forget the paper boy. <laughs> we give out these begging cards. My two quotes. They were only two quotes from my childhood. Well, they're very should, appropriate, very appropriate. We better get back to you before <laughs> I uh, before I uh, get too reminiscent of the good old days. So empathy. Well,
3: yeah, and empathy is, is is very simply the ability to think about other people before you think about yourself. And and this kid uh, in India, whose name incidentally I haven't said yet, I don't think, is Stuns and Sherup. The first day I walked into his classroom, I literally walked into his classroom because the people in the village were quite small. The doorway was very was a lot lower <laughs> than I'm used to. And as I was walking through the doorway, my first class with these grade threes, very nervous. They didn't speak much. You know. I didn't speak much English, and I certainly don't speak any Ladakhi. I I literally walked straight into the doorway and bumped my head, and I've never seen a group of
1: nine-year-olds laugh so much in my entire life. Well, listeners, listeners need to know Hugh is six foot five, and just <laughs> barely got into the studio here. <laughs> yeah, you look pretty tall. You look like you're from the land of the Giants. They would have wondered what, <laughs> what the was going on. I don't six foot five. That's very generous, but thank you. Um,
3: <laughs> yeah, so as I walked in, bumped my head, and, and and the next day I walked back to the same classroom, and, and obviously you don't forget when you walk into a doorway. So I was about to... Duck down, but this kid, Stunson Sherup is standing under the doorway and he's pointing up at the doorway mm. and what he was pointing at was he had found an old rag and he had filled it with leaves and sand and he had wrapped it around the doorway mm. to create padding for me mm. just in case I'd <laughs> my head. This they is the thought, ability... Why is the ability to think about other people before you mm-hmm. think about yourself. Mm-hmm. Why is he so empathetic? Because he practices it every day. Every mm-hmm. day he commits to doing one thing kind mm-hmm. for everyone else. And, mm-hmm. and, the, and the, the power of that, when you do that, is that uh, is, is from a physiological level. Where every time you do something kind for someone else or you reach out to someone else, your brain releases oxytocin. Mm-hmm. Very, very and um, you know everyone in, in this room understands that very well. But your brain, you know, it's a very powerful feel-good hormone. Mm-hmm. Plus, on top of that, there's research in the last couple of years that looks at uh, when, when when oxytocin. Goes goes past the heart There are receptors in the heart that receive the oxytocin which men's heart cells mm. damaged by stress and emotional trauma this kid is literally it's his
1: inbuilt resilience mechanism mm. is he, he doing it work. consciously is he purposely trying to practice one no, good thing a day or I, is it I, just no. second nature from his culture or whatever i,
3: I, I think he has found that um, you know in our culture i think people think well we live by this if and then model you know if i get this you know that you know if i get this ipod then i'll be happy if i get this job then i'll be happy if i get this house then i'll be happy which is a very dangerous model to live by because all these mm. things can be taken off us but this kid without those things to focus on has just instinctively learned what really counts uh, mm. and and being kind to other people makes you feel good it's not why we do it but when you do something for someone else it makes you feel good it makes and i'm talking about small things mm. and you know not necessarily big things uh,
2: i'd just like to underline that in the world of scheme of things what he did as a little boy in fact was very major because he presumably saw your shock and awe as you walked into the post and hit your head so that was an injury hmm. now in certain situations that could be life threatening he wouldn't know whether you'd get concussion or brain damage or what so he just saw the pain hmm. so from his point of view response, yeah. it's a natural response to seek out to save your life in a way it's a real instinct as yeah. you say
3: and look i've been teaching in schools for, for eight years in primary schools and i could tell you now if i walked into a door in a primary school in australia Uh, It'd be very funny, like it was for these kids in India. But I'd be very surprised if one of the kids fixed padding to the doorway
1: the next day when I walked in. Uh, So that that was incredible. I like that. You know, I'm scratching my head because I have read you know some bits and pieces in the last couple of years. People raising the question: Can you actually teach empathy? And the reason I've read it, it's been around medical student interviews because they try and assess empathy and communication skills. Now I get before um, students go into medicine, and I get that you can assess communication skills, but I wonder whether you can assess empathy and i wonder whether you can teach it well but i hear what sorry i hear what you're saying by teaching the behavioral aspects of empathy, of empathy doing kind things for others hopefully you'll develop the psychological understanding is that how it goes yeah i, I look i hope you can teach empathy is because i've been doing it for
3: the last you know i've tending to do it for the last four years and um and look the the really important part of teaching kindness or teaching empathy that i try and get kids to or teachers whoever's teaching it that Yeah, the really important question you ask is once you reflect on what you did for someone else the second question is how did it make you feel Uh, and when the answer is and it always when I say to the kids how did it? in fact I'll give you a great example from the Melbourne Storm I've been doing a lot of work with the players at the Melbourne Storm and I've been talking to them about about empathy, I said to them all boys uh, you've got uh, a week until I'm back and in that week I want you to do something kind for someone else and I went back into the club and I said "Uh, who can tell me what they did as an act of kindness, now if you think I'm big these men make me look like um, a pygmy that these men are enormous, and they're quite intimidating-looking guys. And I said, who did an act of kindness? And one of the boys at the back of the, road, you know, back of the room put his hand up, and I remember looking at him thinking, this is a guy who I actually thought wasn't too engaged in this stuff. And he said, yeah, yeah, I did an act of kindness. And what he'd done was he had... He had called, um, he'd called a member at random and just called them and thanked them for being a member. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I was quite stunned by this and, and I said, how'd it go? And he said, well, they didn't believe it was me. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I eventually <laughs> convinced them it was me. And then, so the second question is always, how did it make you feel? And I've worked with these guys for a while now and I'm used to the way they talk. They kind of say, I thought he was going to say, oh yeah, no, it was all right, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it was, yeah, it was okay. He said this, he said, it just made me feel so warm inside. And this is one of the rugby league players. I thought, my gosh, you know, this stuff, is it works universally. It doesn't matter who you are. When you do something for someone else, the response is the brain releases oxytocin and it makes you feel good.
2: Well, I think this is really now... Uh underlined by all the neuroscience and as you're mentioning mm-hmm. the oxytocin and it actually has to do with our mid middle of the brain the animal brain which is shut down in western culture for most of the time mm-hmm. and empathy in fact in Harvard is taught by taking medical students out to horse farms and medical students actually watching mother horses and baby uh, really? the horse really and then the questions are what is the mother horse thinking what's the baby horse mm-hmm. thinking that's before they get to the ward rounds mm-hmm. in order to learn non-verbal Amazing. because our western culture is all words mm. empathy is a feeling state mm. so we have to have a redistribution from the high vocabulary and semantics and linguistics down t- down down it really and upgrade the feeling part the empathic and that's mm. why it's all observational it's the and whole visual yeah Really? and
0: there is that evidence around you know that compassion training and meditation does increase uh, i think it's the part of the brain the insula, and particularly uh, so it does increase and change you know the, yeah. our brain's impact and connection with other people and, and I, I guess i was really interested because you sound like such a determined uh, individual who's kind of persevered you said in the beginning it was tougher than you thought but you persevered and you could have gone to books on positive psychology and learnt exactly what you learned in your own experience but but I did think that perhaps learning in your own experience, you know, learning this for yourself before reading it in a book is actually a very powerful motivator um, that you know propels people forward. Yeah, well, so experiential learning is just critical here.
3: Yeah, I lived and breathed it for six months. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for six months, which is and and look, you mentioned mindfulness, so might might be a good one to get onto um, uh, to round out what what I teach in schools and what I teach in clubs. But the, um, I mentioned earlier that one in seven primary school kids has a mental illness. Now, when I finished primary school back in 1992, that statistic was closer to 1 in 50. Uh, you know, It was closer to 1 in 50 still um, in 2005. Uh, we have had this the most severe... Uh, increase towards mental illness we've ever seen in our country. Um, And the reason for that, um, I I believe, and I've heard a lot of people say, oh, it's because more people understand what mental illness is. That's fine, but it doesn't doesn't account for 1 in 50 to 1 in 7 in 10 years. What it is, when you look at the internet and technology, uh, the adolescent and child brain in the year 2015 receives the same amount of information in a week that our brains used to take on in a year. Uh, You know, um, uh, the adolescent and child brain is being absolutely smashed with information, and the result of That we're seeing is anxiety, an overwhelming amount of thoughts that you just cannot take control of. So, that's where when I teach mindfulness, every time I speak to teachers, I say, This is the one that you need to start. You need to start with mindfulness. We need to teach the brain, we need to protect the brain. Inoculate the brain against what's happening to it at the moment uh, and so the way i teach mindfulness and um is is i, I the, there's an app uh, which is free called smiling mind i don't know if you guys are smiling mind it's a beautiful app that is so user-friendly uh it's it's meditation but i don't think the kids at school even realize it's what they're doing um it is, it's 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 called mindfulness training on the app uh, and they just listen to it. Now i I go I introduced this to the Melbourne Storm Boys, to the Collingwood Football Club, to the Hawthorne Footy Club, um and again a bit nervous about you know, schools love it, but I was nervous about how's it gonna go here at somewhere like the Melbourne Storm. Mm. Uh, the Melbourne Storm boys are all doing Mindfulness Australia, they're doing their Smiling Mind every day now, Uh, Mm. one of the guys came up to me and said, I said boys make sure you download Smiling Mind today and I want you to do your meditation before I'm back next week and let me know how it feels and thinking I might do it once or twice one of the guys comes up to me a week later and he shows me on his phone, he says I've got it, just a question about him was a question about the functionality of the program and he points to it, and, and I could see down the bottom right-hand corner, um, and I, now I don't think you'll mind me saying this, his name's Ryan Hinchcliffe, who's captaining while, while Cameron Smith's away with the State of Origin. He points to his phone, and down the bottom right-hand corner, it says um, 38, and that's the amount of times he's done meditation. Oh. And I said, when did you get this app? Thinking you must have had it for ages. And he said, oh, when you told us to get it last week. I said, that, what, you've done 38 meditations in a week? And he said, you have no idea how much I mm. needed this. Mm. Uh, it's almost
1: the perfect, though, um, antidote to the craziness of all this, um, you know, the bombardment we're getting with so many information inputs now. Yep. You know, social media, media outlets, traditional TV, newspapers, the works. You you, you, you barely... Uh, well, I, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but personally, I would barely go a half an hour now without reading four or five different sites. Every time I stop, if I get in a lift... I open my phone and I check what's happening. I might read a quick article on something. Yeah, you sometimes get to the end of the day and you just mind feels frazzled. Yeah, it's, and mindfulness—that idea of just taking a little bit of time out, reflecting on the moment, maybe doing some meditation if you've got the minute or if you've got the time. It is an ab- it, it is an
3: absolute no-brainer. Everyone should be doing it every day, if it's just five minutes. But you know, I, I, you know if we compare our life to a snapshot of, of adolescence these days, if you think about us. You know, going home from school for me it was walking to the tram stop for ten minutes and then mm-hmm. getting on the tram for twenty minutes and then another walk for twenty minutes. I had about forty five minutes every day where I was okay just being by myself. Mm-hmm. But we don't see that anymore. Kids mm-hmm. have a device in front of them, and as you say, they are absolutely loaded with. Inf- they are getting smashed by information, and, and, and that brains just don't get a rest like ours used to. Now
1: we're going to carry this conversation on after we're going to have a short break, and um, Malice is going to take it into the realm of trauma as well. So we'll continue the conversation before we do. Where where is the best place, you that people can find out more about what you've been talking about? Is it your website? Is that the best spot? Yeah, I would say the, the website's a great place to start, uh,
3: theresilienceproject.com.au. And then there's our Facebook page, which has uh, a lot of case studies, I suppose, of people who I've met who have put this stuff into practice and are actually feeling the benefits. Um, so Facebook, The Resilience Project, is, is a great place.
0: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Now, so we've been talking about resilience with uh, Hugh Van Keilenberg from the Resilience Project. You've also got Dr Eva Green, myself, Dr Doolittle. But now, he says turning across and grabbing his attention, we have Dr Mellis, who's going to talk a little bit more and follow it on to talk a bit, to in bring in the idea of trauma, I gather. Is that right, Mellis? Absolutely, and I think if we've all got warm, fuzzy feelings
2: after Hugh's presentation, it's because it was so much sense, in a way common sense that's no longer in our culture and there's a restorative quality, a reparative quality in hearing what he's doing, based on his very personal experiences and translating that Autobiographical experience into science and then imparting it onto school children, onto elite sports people, and we're privileged, I think, here in Triple R to be in his proximity and getting it vicariously repairing us. Now, that's all the reparative, that's bringing us back to our centre. Unfortunately, there's more to this than just disengagement in some experiences in human condition because disengagement we can engage. And Hugh's work, I would suggest, has a lot of power in re engaging parts that are disengaged. However, in the extreme, we also get to states that are known as dissociation. And for that, I'd like to offer a a little anecdote, also a personal story to do with my mum, who I have to pass a mum test before I go to any uh, conference or submit an article or a book chapter and so on, and that is to give her the copy and then she reads through it and then says, you know, if it's okay or not. And the couple of weeks ago, this is based on work a colleague and I, Vicky Gordon, uh, and I are doing over the last 10 years with a massive trauma, if you want the Magna Carta of all traumas, Holocaust trauma. And my mum is actually a survivor. And so our work, Vicky's and mine, is to do with transfer of trauma between generations, vicarious trauma and so on. And when I presented this writing to my mum, she threw through it and said, oh, what's this? And that was the phrase vicarious trauma. And she wanted to know what vicarious was. So I said, oh, mum, it's sort of like, you know, when you talk about your trauma, a little bit rubs off on me and then perhaps, you know, I might get a bit of your trauma over to me. And without missing a heartbeat, she said, oh, like if I smoke, smoke onto you, I'm smoking, but you get the smoke. Mm. And I said, like... Absolutely, that's vicarious smoke. This is vicarious trauma. So on a flippant way she said, Well you introduced all this by saying this is breaking news. I've known about this for so long. What's so new about this? So (laughs) I said, Mum your mother could (laughs) I said, Mum, well, you know, you've been talking with me and Vicky and I are working at this at the cutting edge, so it's not news to you. So she went on, Well, give me something new to work on, like, you know, hey, (laughs) come on, up to speed, boy. Anyway, the point is that in the last 10 years, and this is actually Hugh was saying how much the incidence of mental illness in... Primary school has risen in the last decade, has to do with a tremendously deepening understanding of the neuroscience of what stress and, in the extreme, trauma is. And we now see that trauma is a condition which has dissociation at its epicenter. You can't actually, in our definition, have trauma without a dissociation, which immediately raises what is dissociation? Well, it's got a long history which we won't go into. But essentially the language of dissociation in the past had to do with things like ruptured, severed, uh, repressed or squashed or suppressed. And that language conjures up a certain imagery which is totally inappropriate for what actually happens in our brain and body because now we know the brain-body axis is a unitary axis in trauma and stress. And he was speaking about oxytocin not only on the brain but also the heart receptors. So, and we've got immunological issues and so on with stress and trauma. The point here being is the model we use is the Swiss cheese model. You used the donut earlier. uh, (laughs) Keep your eye on the donut, not the hole. In the Swiss cheese, the same thing. We could equally use the donut model. When two people meet with each other and one has trauma, doesn't know they've got the Swiss cheese holes or the donut hole, but the other person picks up on that. And the way we pick up on it is very sublime. It is subliminal, in fact, because we follow each other's conversations. You're following my language, hopefully a bit of my hand gesture. They're all coming from different parts of my brain. If I was to stop talking for a moment, people in the listener land of radio will say, oh, he's had a bit of a blank. But if here in the studio my hand keeps rolling on, you know I've only disconnected a part of me. That is the verbal part. My gesture part is ongoing. So we have what are called vertical and horizontal dissociations. And why do we speak about vertical and horizontal? Obviously, question. Well, we now know that the brain functions at three levels, the left and right cortex, the upper brain, the horsey brain in the middle, the mammalian brain, the limbic system, uh, incus, we mentioned, amygdalas and so on. And then the lower brain is the reptilian brain stem brain, which is where we have the survival instincts, fight, flight, freeze and faint very important in elite sports because they are actually fighting for their lives. Mm -hmm. Now I know it's symbolic, however the barricers will often express words from the MCG like, kill them, get him, kill them, you know. So it's pretty passionate stuff at the FFFF state. And there may be other Fs for the barricers, but let's stay physiological, <laughs> like faint, freeze, fl- yeah.
1: Frightened, flight. Yeah,
2: we won't go into the uh, linguistic abuse of F, like F off. <laughs> However, the question then comes, this is all dissociation. Fall over fumble the ball. <laughs> fumble, oh, of what else? Hawk. Yeah. Hawk. I don't know what you were thinking. Yeah, Hawk supporters only talk about fumble. Yeah. There is no other word they know, even.
3: We don't fumble that much.
2: Um, or, uh, in fact, we don't fumble. That's right. Oh, go on. <laughs> now, let's get back to the main, mainstream. The important thing about dissociation is, as I mentioned, if you meet two donuts and they resonate with the whole part or two Swiss cheeses and the holes in it, then you have an experience called dissociative attunement. Now, this is really something to grab our heads around because you're actually attuning to a space. Around the donut is the donut, and that's the language. Are you talking about two people who have
1: suffered trauma meet?
2: I'm I'm talking about one who comes to a therapist, and the other one vicariously will develop a whole... They will become a donut, even if they were a full loaf of bread or whatever the pastry is in donut. (laughs) Really hungry all the
1: stuff. Breakfast time.
2: (laughs) They will develop a hole in the process of dissociatively attuning to the trauma sufferer. So the therapist. As in an
0: empathic response? Now,
2: exactly. That is precisely it. We've always thought of empathy in the past as the positives, like do kindness feel for their pain. Here dissociative attunement is you feel for their space, for the emptiness, the abyss, the unworded, the non wordable. And that dissociative attunement is the beginning of the possibility of repair. Mm. If you don't track the dissociative attunement, you don't know. This is now talking from the therapist's position. Mm-hmm. You track yourself really from top to toe. Am I thinking straight? Am I feeling straight? Is my heart racing and I don't know why? Am I losing a bit of conscious awareness? And the acronym here is BASC. We bask in dissociation. Behaviour, Affect, sensation, and knowledge. These are the four things that we dissociate in. Mm -hmm. Our behavior, so we can get actually frozen listening to someone who's traumatized. In affect, we can feel panic but it's preceded by dissociation. Sensation, we can actually go numb and f- st- stop feeling properly, and knowledge is we can lose words, sentences, and have thought block, what's often mm. a characteristic of schizophrenia and other symptoms. And if we don't know the BASK, B-A-S-K acronym, is the hole in the middle, the dissociative attunement, we then don't have the chance to repair it. If we do recognise it, we then, instead of going ourselves as therapists into deeper dissociative states ourselves through empathic fatigue... Vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, there's a lot of language for this, but essentially it's the same physiology. Our tank runs dry of oxytocin, we're soaked in adrenaline, cortisol, mm. and we, we really melt down in the presence of the
1: patient. Now, I realise we're running a little bit out of time, but so where does resilience come into this one?
2: Now, resilience is a, a very popular word. I would actually use reparative moments lead to resilience, that all this is happening at one three hundredth of a second. So it's subliminal, but it's happening. And we know the research for one, 300 second You get 100,000 of these seconds and the person bounces back and they're ready to go for the next goal. They're ready at the end of the season to fight the grand final if you're Hawthorne. And you come out two years in a row because you coach them. Yay,
1: Hawks. <laughs> now,
2: they would be called resilient. In fact, they've had Tone so many... the microphone new...
1: and put on the Collingwood thing. So <laughs> da, 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 da.
2: Go on, sorry. Right, now this is in fact where they have had abundant millions of reparative moments the the app that hugh's recommending to them mindfulness whichever teams onto mindfulness they've got reparative moments going on the fellow you mentioned 38 moments in a a, mindfulness in a week wow i want hawthorne to do that 138 (coughs) times yeah because they are repairing the vicarious trauma holes so all of that is that in my in, in to bring it around that now if we know something about what is dissociation and dissociative attunement then i could actually have my mum smoke smoke blown into my face and not start coughing mm-hmm. because yeah. i have got a built up awareness that i will be irritated by the traumatic smoke mm-hmm. i will then perhaps step back a bit hold my breath and therefore, provide reparative moments for me and for her. Mm-hmm. And so, this is our ten-year study, Vicky and I, are doing presenting work on this. And this is where
1: it takes disengagement to the next step to dissociation. Mm-hmm. Car the to, hawks. We've had to fly through that a little bit. I'm sorry, uh, Nellis, but that was good finish, and, so. yeah, it was a good finish. It was a good finish, Strong except finish. for the car the hawks. Um, <laughs> Hugh, thanks so much for coming in today and Pleasure. talking about the Resilience Project. Pleasure. And uh, we'll put the links up to the Resilience Project's website on our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R. Um, and uh, it's been great to hear about it. Mellis, have you got? When is your next Hawks game? That your beloved Hawks are they this weekend or well, next they, weekend? They
2: played last Thursday, oh, so they? they've
1: got a, a week away now. Oh, no, so you've had a win and you can and bask, bask in the glory. Now the Bask
2: B A S K. You bask. can't go on
1: too long. We've only got ten and seconds. Bask in no in more hawk
0: I've just associated yeah. with all this football. Time. <laughs> I oh,
1: know, I don't blame you. And um, Dr. we would be going berserk if she's listening at home, letting all this football talk get onto her regular show. Um, I'm Dr. Lul- Doolittle. I look forward to meeting you all again next week on Radiotherapy. In the meantime, we're over to the scientists at I Iron-
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.